happens when you do impromptu bongos, you get your stuff. Good morning. We are in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. If you need a Bible, please slip up your hand and we will get you a Bible. So Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17 got a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right in. As the seven seals are open, and that's what we're in now, we're in the seal judgment, that seven sealed scroll is being unrolled, and there are judgments coming upon mankind. The next set of judgments, the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, are, they come in sequence, but one judgment doesn't end and another begins one judgment comes upon another and another and another and it's just compounded so that the earth at this time is going through quite a bit. It's reeling from all the judgments coming upon them one after the other. Now the Bible says that this time of judgment is known as the day of the Lord. And so if today is man's day, the day of man if you will, then the day of the Lord is coming. The Lord will have his day. Judgment will be poured out upon mankind. And when it does, this world that we know, the way we know it, is going to be shaken to its very core. So look at verse 12. I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. So Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, we see the judgment that comes upon the earth. And we're grateful, Lord, that as believers in you, Lord Jesus, that we won't be here to see that. But our hearts are heavy for those who are. And we pray, Lord, as you warn us all through this book, you tell us, Lord, that these judgments come in waves, not all together, not at once. I mean, you could judge the world right now today, Lord. You could put an end to this right now today, but you've given mankind time to come to know you as Lord and Savior. You've given mankind time to know you, to know your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I pray that all those who hear this message this morning would see your grace and your mercy in your word, even in the book of Revelation. Lord, we know from reading this and knowing how loving a God you are, that the book of Revelation is not just a book of judgment, but rather it is a book of evangelism. It is a book of mercy and of grace. And Lord, we're so thankful that even in your judgment, you show your mercy and your grace. So go before us now this morning. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So one day, in the midst of the tribulation, the world will see an earthquake that will cause the entire world to quake. The sun, John sees the sun becoming as black as sackcloth, and the moon appearing as if it's red like blood. Now, Jesus spoke of these seismic disorders in his Olivet Discourse. He said, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. So... Joel also wrote of these comic, cosmic, not comic, they're not comic, cosmic disturbances. In Joel chapter 2, verse 10, we read, Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. So as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and try to picture this, if you would, he has just told his disciples that as they're marveling at this great, architectural wonder the temple and he's telling them that there's going to come a time when every stone every stone of this building that they see is going to be toppled down and so they ask him three questions and it's recorded in Matthew 24 they ask him number one when will these things be they ask him number two what will be the sign of your coming and then the third question they ask is what will be the sign of the end of the age so Jesus answers all three questions, just not in the order that they were asked. Jesus answers number three, 
what will be the sign of the end of the age? He answers that one first. Now, since the church age began with the teachings of Jesus, the age that they're referring to is the age of the church. When will the age of the church come to an end? And Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, that there are signs that will occur just prior to this church age winding down. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So these signs that indicate that the church age is winding down would be one, widespread deception. I don't think we're seeing any of that today, are we? There would be no peace as wars would be breaking out around the world. There would be no love for one another as ethnic and racial strife would reach all-time highs. We're not seeing any of that either, are we? Worldwide famines would begin to increase. Now, there was a 2017 World Health Organization report that says hunger due to scarcity of food Famine is increasing around the world. It's on the rise around the world. Pestilence and disease would also begin to increase and would also be felt around the world. Now, from the Spanish flu in 1918, which, by the way, scientists have discovered was caused by the H1N1A strain of virus, killed approximately 500 million people at that time all the way to COVID-19 today, which to date has spread to 213 continents and has affected, I'm sorry, six continents, 613. <laughs> the earth has grown since we started this morning. Six continents, 213 countries, and has killed approximately 812,000 deaths around the world. So worldwide pandemics like these, diseases and all of this will continue into the tribulation. Jesus said there'd be also an increase in seismic activity causing earthquakes in various places. And these earthquakes would continue to increase not only in frequency but intensity as the time of the church age draws to a close. In other words, these earthquakes are going to get much more powerful and be more destructive. So let's talk about that for a moment because it's a massive earthquake that John sees this morning and the results of that, the effects of that happening. Now, even though the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, has come out and said that earthquakes are not on the increase, there is a movie called The Coming, Conver Coming Convergence. Anybody see that? I highly recommend that, that every Christian who's interested in pro Bible prophecy see The Coming Convergence movie. The producers of that movie use the government's own data to show that earthquakes 6.3 and higher were actually increasing between 1920 and 2000. So they use the government's own data to show that the government isn't exactly telling the truth. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to anybody. But this earthquake that Jesus describes is so massive that it affects the entire world. Now I want you to listen to an article out of the USGS about a megaquake. They say no earthquakes of magnitude 10 or larger cannot happen, or they can't happen is what they're saying. The magnitude of an earthquake is related to the length of the fault on which it occurs. That is, the longer the fault, the larger the earthquake. A fault is a break in the rocks that make up the Earth's crust, along with the rocks on either side have moved past each other. No fault long enough to generate a magnitude 10 earthquake is known to exist. And if it did, it would extend around most of the planet. Now, I want you to bear in mind, we're talking about a 10.0 magnitude earthquake. There was a 9.5 magnitude earthquake in Chile, in Chile, not too, well, when was that? Uh, May 22nd, 1960. That fault was over 1,000 miles long. So I want you to listen to an article now that the NPR published about that quake. As the 1960 newsreel boomed, nations reckoned, 
reckon up the grim toll of the seismic shocks that triggered a week of devastating earthquakes and volcanic eruptions in Chile. The tidal waves and tropical storms that battered every shore from the Philippines to Japan to Alaska, what became known as the Great Chilean Earthquake, revealed something new about the planet, that the world itself can vibrate like a giant guitar string. The seismic waves went through every part of the globe, even its core, and because they were so strong, scientific instruments from around the world picked up the signal. When it was over, seismologists realized the earthquake had given them a new window into the Earth's structure. Nature had given the planet something like an ultrasound scan. So a megaquake can, in fact, be felt around the world. And God is more than capable of producing a 10-point or higher earthquake, isn't he? And what I want to point out mainly about this Chilean earthquake is that it triggered other earthquakes, and it also triggered a volcanic eruption. New research out of the University of California, California Berkeley suggests that within two months and up to five years of a major earthquake, 6.5 or higher, it can trigger a volcanic eruption. Now, as we see from the data in the two, 1960 Chilean earthquake, a more powerful earthquake can trigger a volcanic eruption that much quicker, almost immediately. And so I believe this is what John's seeing. He's seeing as this seal is open, he's seeing, witnessing a mega earthquake. The sun is darkened, the moon turns red in color. This massive earthquake has triggered not only other earthquakes, but has caused active and dormant volcanoes to erupt, which spew ash into what? Into the atmosphere, right? Now, Scientists have discovered that if you look at the moon through the lens of ash falling, the moon appears to be red in color. And they certainly have had some practice with some of the volcanoes that have erupted recently. An article posted in the Daily Mail of June 2011 says, sky watchers were treated to a stunning lunar eclipse last night as ash from the atmosphere from a Chilean volcano turned it blood red. Scientists said the specific phenomenon is known as a deep lunar eclipse. So the ash from a volcanic eruption can also not only turn the blood, the moon to appear blood red, but it can also darken the sun. It can blacken the sun. It can blot out the sun, leaving it dark to the eye, making it appear as if it was covered in sackcloth. So I want you to imagine now, none of us really ever felt anything higher than what, maybe a magnitude five earthquake around here? I remember in work one time in Jersey City sitting in my office and the building began to shake. And that was a, a, a earthquake I think that was in Virginia. So, and I don't think that was a very big earthquake. I don't remember it to be that big at the time. But can you imagine a 10.0? The destruction that the Chilean earthquake caused was, it was just massive destruction and that was a 9.5, 10.0 or larger. Can you imagine what that could do? Think of the additional earthquakes that this would trigger of 6.0 and over. And the, the active volcanoes, the inactive, the dormant volcanoes, all of them erupting at the same time. Listen, this would cause massive destruction upon the earth. Now, there's volcanoes under the sea that scientists haven't even begun to study yet. So we don't know exactly where some fault lines are, how many volcanoes would erupt. I guess one day we're going to find out. But a, a volcanic eruption or, or an earthquake under the sea would create a fault line that would erupt all of those volcanoes over there. You know, I was watching a PBS program the other day. I didn't realize that there were volcanoes in, in California. As we're watching it, one of the guys says to their, their host, what are that mountain range back there? And he says, that's not a mountain range. Those are dormant volcanoes. And I had no idea that they existed. One more reason not to move to California. But these, this ash from these eruptions will turn day into night, blocking out the sun. And the moon, if you could see it, would appear from the naked eye to be blood red. It would cause massive tsunamis, just like it did in the Chilean earthquake. This, these tsunamis would, tsunamis would spread around the globe on all the coastal areas. There would be hot embers from the ash falling, which, which would create wildfires, the like of which we've never seen before. So the earth would tremble and shake at this. The destruction would absolutely be devastating. 
And so the key that Jesus gives us that precedes his coming or precedes the end of the age of the church is that these earthquakes will continue to increase in frequency and in intensity as the day draws near for him to come for his church. And so as we see these signs increasing and getting worse, we know it's a, it's a warning sign for us or it's a reminder for us, I like to think, that his time for coming for his church is drawing nearer. And once that happens, what we're seeing in John, in Revelation rather, from chapter 6 to chapter 19 is the beginning of the tribulation period, is what happens once the church is raptured out of here. Now, it's interesting to note, when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, the whole earth did what? Or the mountain, rather, did what? It quaked. It quaked at his presence, right? People trembled. That's in Exodus 19:18. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened? There was an earthquake, right? Matthew 27, 51 through 52. So God has used earthquakes to show people his power. On Mount Sinai, by causing the mountain to shake, he's telling people, I am God. On Calvary, when the, when the earth shook, it was saying, this is my son, my beloved son. He is the Messiah. Through the death of Jesus Christ, the world would never be the same again. Thank God for that, right? Salvation through Jesus is now possible. The death of Jesus on the cross on Calvary brought defeat to Satan and death. We've gained victory over sin in the grave now. And the point is that God uses these things, even earthquakes, to get people's attention. He uses the quaking of the earth to get people's attention, even in the tribulation. Like I said, on Mount Sinai, it was, I am God. On Calvary, it was, this is my beloved son. This is the Messiah. So each time this earth quakes, it's a reminder to us that God is making ready for the return of his son to rule and reign on this earth. Please understand, as doom and gloom as all this sounds, and I know it's not very pleasant to talk about this kind of stuff on a Sunday morning, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. I'm not trying to scare you out of hell. I'm trying to prepare you for what's going to happen. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to go through this. You're not going to be here to witness this. You'll be raptured out of here. So I encourage you as believers to be rapture ready. And what does that mean? That means if Jesus could come back today, this moment, right now, well, he'd find you all sitting in church like saints, right? Well, is it the same during the rest of the week? If Jesus came back during your week, what would he find you doing? Where would he find you at? What would he find you doing in front of your computer? What would he find you doing somewhere? Just keep asking yourselves that. Live each day as if he could come back at that very moment. Be ready for him. And hopefully that encourages you, prepares you, but encourages you to get your focus off of this world and get, the, get your focus planted firmly on Jesus. And if you're a non-believer, I hope this message or these messages prepare you for what the tribulation will be like. And listen, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, man, that doesn't sound so bad, God help you. You need counseling. I'm encouraging you through this to come to Christ now to avoid ever having to go through any of this. There is a way out. Jesus offers us a way out. Will the church be raptured in our lifetime? I don't know. No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. But I'm going to keep saying this until the Lord takes me home. If we're seeing the shadows of what occurs in the tribulation now, how much closer is the real thing? Look at verse 13 of Revelation 6. And the stars of the heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its figs, its late figs, when it's shaken by a mighty wind. So remember, there were three questions that the disciples asked Jesus. Jesus answered the third question first. What would be the sign of the end of the age? And then he answered the first question second. When will these things occur? Jesus had said, not one stone will be left upon the other. And then he tells them why and when that will happen. You can see that in Luke Luke 21, actually, verses 20 through 24 gives you a, a more detailed explanation of that. But basically what happens is the Roman general Titus comes in in 70 A.D. His army burns the temple. The gold inside the temple melts. They dismantle the temple wall stone by stone to get to the gold. 
And when we were in Jerusalem, we actually stood at the base of the Temple Mount and saw those stones laying there, just as Jesus said they would be. Then Jesus answers the second question last, what will be the sign of your coming? How will people know that you are just about to come now from the heaven with your saints to rule and reign on this earth? And this is what he said. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24 verses 29 through 30. In Luke chapter 21 we read, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are to come upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken they will see they will then see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory luke 21 25 through 27 so the signs preceding his return to this earth will be a complete shaking of the cosmos the earth and the heavens will be shaken it's going to be an event so unsettling that men will faint or their hearts will fail from the very sight of this. In other words, men will be scared to death. They will die from what they're seeing. The moon and the sun is going to be completely darkened just prior to Jesus entering into this atmosphere. Now, I want you to try and picture in your mind because as believers in Christ, one day we're going to experience this from heaven. We're going to see this from the other side of it. We're not going to be on earth looking up. We're going to be in heaven coming in with this. Try and imagine the complete earth, everything, sky, everything, moon, sun, stars, everything, just completely darkened. And so everyone's looking up now, and God gives a sign. Whatever that sign is, maybe it's just the Shekinah glory of Jesus as he enters into the earth atmosphere, and everything just brightens up, right? And they see the Son of Man returning. The light of the world now appears in the sky to rule and reign and judge this earth. Everything's dark, just like you're in a darkened theater and the screen comes up. Everything's dark, and then all of a sudden you see the light of the world appear. How amazing will that be to see from whatever end you're looking at it from? Before Jesus returns, John sees the stars falling from the sky and the earth being rolled up like a scroll. And he's remembering a passage of Scripture that he would have been very familiar with in Isaiah. Isaiah writes, And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as the withers from or as one withers from the fig tree Isaiah 34 4 so it sounds very familiar to what John's describing doesn't it now the Greek word here in revolution in revolution revelation I gotta stop watching the Patriot the Greek word used in revelation for stars is aster aster could mean a star or it can also mean any heavenly body, like an asteroid or a meteor. So the first mention we have of stars in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 1. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made also the stars. In Job we read, he removes mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and Pleiades and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. Job 9, verses 5 through 10. God created the stars. God created the heavens, the moon and the sun, the multiverse, right? We know it now not just as a universe but as a multiverse. And so man can calculate, and they have, man has calculated, scientists have calculated when they believe the sun is going to finally burn out. They've calculated this. Man can sit and do all their calculations that they want, but it takes God to make those decisions. It's up to God when those things happen. So what does John see? Does he see stars literally falling to the earth? A star is much larger than the earth. You know that from elementary science, right? A star is also about 100,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So for a star to fall to the earth, it would completely incinerate the earth 
And at this time, we know the earth is not being completely destroyed. Some believe John's seeing falling stars, and that's a very good possibility, or a meteor shower. But whatever John's witnessing here, mankind's going to see it one day, and whatever they see, it's going to scare them literally to death. Watching the stars, watching the light of the moon and the rays of the sun just being blotted out, and the stars going dark and the, and the moon going dark, that's got to be frightening, no? I mean, this is something that you've gotten up every single morning for your entire life and seen. It's something you've seen every single night before you've gone to bed. The sun, the stars, and the moon. Can you imagine them just going dark? It would look to those, it would look like to those watching this, like the world was coming to an end, and, and absolutely it is coming to an end. The world as we know it will be coming to an end. Now, scientists believe that there are approximately 6,100 meteors that hit this earth every single day. So be careful when you're walking around out there. Now, as debris from asteroids enter the Earth's atmosphere, they burn up, creating what we call meteor showers or falling stars. Anybody ever seen falling stars? It's a nice light show, isn't it? Now, these, the John Singh, would be much bigger, much hotter. And this meteor shower would be something to remember. And this one would be a lot scarier to witness. So here's another exciting scientific fact. Scientists have known for some time that the asteroid belts that surround stars, or belts rather that surround the stars, contain asteroids. And so from Earth, or from a telescope, these asteroid belts actually look like stars. As a matter of fact, if you see them on a black screen, you can't really determine what's a star and what's an asteroid. The difference is that asteroids are, asteroids are only a few million kilometers from Earth, whereas stars are many times further away in our solar system. So it's possible what John sees here is a flood of asteroids coming to Earth, falling from sky, entering into the Earth's atmosphere, looking as if the stars are literally falling from the sky. Is that what John sees here? Does John see a meteor shower? Are these asteroids? We don't know for certain, but we know that God can make the heavens and the Earth submit to his will, right? God created them. God can have them, command them to do anything he wants. Whatever happens here, whatever John's seeing, whatever mankind who's left on the earth when this is happening, it's a cataclysmic event. And it's going to cause mass hysteria and massive widespread destruction around the globe. Look at verse 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So the earth receding like a scroll is a little bit harder to interpret, okay? And there's been a lot of different interpretations. One, and I'm only giving you one, one possible explanation for this is called the continental shift. Now, there's a lot of geophysicists who have written papers and published reports on theories that they have that the Earth's crust has shifted before and will shift again. Another article from NPR Science Section reads, the Earth's continents are in constant motion, or at least three, on at least three occasions they have collided to form one giant continent. If history is a guide, the current continents will collapse once again to form another supercontinent, and the study in nature now shows how that could come about. You could think of continents as giant puzzle pieces shifting around the Earth. When they drift apart, mighty oceans form. When they come together, oceans disappear. And it's all because continents sit on moving plates of the Earth's crust. One such supercontinent was formed during, and they called it Pangaea. I don't know if you remember that from science in school. That's believed to existed during the Paleozoic or Mesozoic era. It was assembled from earlier continent units shifting. Now, that in turn split at one point and formed two other continents, Laurasia and Gondwana, were formed. Laurasia made up present-day continents of North America, Greenland, Europe, and Asia, and Gondwana made up present-day continents of the Antarctica, Australia, and South America. So what if what John sees here is another moving of the tectonic plates, and God causes a continental uh, uh, shift here again? All who are on the earth would feel the earth's plates actually moving under their feet. And as they're moving in one direction, looking up at the sky, it would appear as if the sky was moving or rolling up. 
I don't know if that's what happens, but this would also explain how the islands and the, the, and the mountains just move out of their place, right? If the earth shifts again, this would also explain that. And God is more than capable of causing the earth's plates to shift once again. Again, is that what John's seeing? We don't know for certain because we're just trying to use scientific explanations to describe what God's doing here. And we know that that's never worked in the past. God is God. You know, science could try to explain whatever they want, but God can do whatever he wants, making science just obsolete. One thing's for certain. God's going to shake the heavens and the earth one day. And when he does, he will have, I guarantee you, he will have the attention of every single person left on the earth at that time. All of those who have placed their faith and hope and trust in this world are going to have their world rocked to its very core. God's going to shake things up on this earth to get the attention of all those who have still stubbornly rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Listen, God could just destroy all this right now, couldn't he? With the snap of the finger, it could be all gone. So why go through all of this? Why get man's attention? Why do it in phases like this? Why not just do it all at once? Because I believe God's giving us time. He's giving mankind time to repent, even during the tribulation. That's God's grace, isn't it? Just like I think God's shaking, well, I know, we know God's shaking up the world right now, the world that we live in. He's shaking it right now. Not to the extreme he's going to do in the last days, but he's certainly shaking up life as we knew it, as we once knew it, causing us to rearrange our priorities. You know, it's funny, I was telling the guys yesterday in, in uh, men's discipleship class, when COVID first came out and people were home, people were on their on. on on their phones all the time, but they were on their phones listening to messages, um, reading certain things, doing certain, reading the Bible, they're spending more time praying, and they're posting these things. Now that people are starting to go back to work, things have gone back to the way they were. They're not so much into the Bible anymore. They're not watching messages anymore. They're not really even attending church anymore. Things are going back to normal, and normal wasn't good before. Normal wasn't good before. God shook this earth. God gave the entire planet, think about this for me, gave the entire world a time out to get our attention. And when things start going back to even semi-normal standards, it shows how quickly we go back to forgetting about God. God still wants to get our attention. He's still there every day waiting for us to spend that time with him, wanting to spend time with us. He's even removed things that have caused us to lose focus on him, right? Even church, even church. He's caused people who go to church to realize it's not about a building. We're the church. It's about us. We are the church. He's showing mankind grace by warning us through these signs that if we haven't repented of our sin before the return of Jesus Christ, that it's going to be too late. God is getting our attention, even in the book of Revelation. Has he gotten yours? Have you woken up to what's going on around us? Are you more in tuned with the end times, with what the Lord's doing, and how just how close we are to his coming? Are you looking up? Because God always wants us to be ready, whether he comes back today or 50 years from now or 100 years from now. He wants us to be ready every single minute of every day for his return. To live today as if his return could be before we finish this message. Now there's some who's going to hear this message and they're not going to heed the warning contained in it. Because they struggle with a message like this. They struggle when you hear about death and destruction, about the Lord bringing judgment upon the earth. Because they can't get past the fact why would a loving God bring such sudden and catastrophic destruction upon an earth and the inhabitants of the earth, right? Ever asked that question? Hopefully I can clear some of this up. One, for one thing, ju this judgment that God brings upon the world isn't sudden, is it? He's been warning us for years. Pastors have been preaching about this for years. Just like Noah preached in the desert for 120 years that judgment was coming, we have been warning people, the word of God has been warning people, there are signs and signals that he's given us that his return is near. Now people 
still today, like they did in Noah's day, have just ignored those warnings. God said he was going to bring judgment against the world then, and he did. And the Lord has said he's going to bring judgment against the Christ-rejecting world in the future, and he will. So when the tribulation begins, if you're here to face these catastrophic events that's described from chapter 6 to chapter 21, you're here because God didn't leave you behind. You're here because you ignored the warnings and you rejected Christ, and that's why you're here. God didn't leave you here. You left yourself here. Two, people ask then, well, how could a loving God judge the world the way we read in Revelation? Why can't he just forgive everyone? Why can't everyone just go to heaven? Now, that's a topic that would take hours. And there have been scholars much smarter than me who have spent hours debating this topic. And the Bible does say that God is loving. But it also says that he's going to send some people to hell. So how do you rectify that? Could it be that both of those things are true? Think about this for a minute. God is a loving God, yet he will bring judgment upon the world. He will bring destruction upon this Christ-rejecting world. There will be people who will spend eternity in hell. You see, just because God is a loving God doesn't mean that he loves everything, does he? There are some things that God doesn't love. In fact, the Bible tells us there are some things that God hates. In Proverbs, we read, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. God doesn't love murder, does he? He doesn't love abuse. He doesn't love selfishness. He doesn't love pride or anything done through an evil heart. And doesn't that make perfect sense? If he's a loving God, then he would hate those things, wouldn't he? For example, it wouldn't be very loving of God to see something like child abuse and say, I'm not really bothered by that. So God is a loving God, but God does not love everything. And because... This loving God hates evil. He does something about it. That's called what? Justice. People who are evil and do evil things are not allowed in the perfect kingdom of God. They're shut out of it. It is loving of a just God to punish wrongdoing. So that only perfect things are allowed into his perfect kingdom. And I'd like to remind you, maybe by a show of hands, how many here today are perfect? seen any hands you sure none of us are perfect none of us have treated God none of us have treated each other in the perfect way that we're attended to in, not yet I know I haven't I'm certainly not perfect I've not treated people the way I should treat them I've hurt people I've even hurt the people I love the most I've ignored their needs I get frustrated I get impatient the list goes on and on and on because I am an imperfect person I haven't treated God as I should treat him I, should, I haven't treated them as my creator. I haven't treated them as my Lord and therefore the ruler of my life. So I deserve punishment for wrongdoing, as we all do. We all deserve to be punished. You know, someone asked me the other day, how are you doing? I said, better than I deserve. Because what I deserve, what we all deserve, is the punishment, is the wrath of God. But we're all doing better than what we deserve. We deserve to be punished because none of us are perfect. Not one. Not one of us should be able to enter into God's perfect kingdom. And there's only a way that we can be made perfect. There's only one way. There's only one way that we can enter God's perfect kingdom, and that is by being covered by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we submit to him, when we surrender to him, when we surrender our lives to him as our Lord and Savior, his perfect blood washes away our sins and covers us so that God no longer sees us as sinners, but sees us perfected in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Jesus doesn't tell us that he's the only way, the only life, and the only truth in an arrogant way or to scare us into accepting him. He tells us that because he loves us, because he cares about us, and he tells us that to warn us, to tell us that he's offering us a way out. He's offering us a way out of this. 
Listen, Jesus is the best news that you're ever going to hear in your lifetime. Because even though we deserve the punishment, even though we all deserve to go to hell, Jesus, God in the flesh, has provided a way out of that for us. And he doesn't do that by leaving things unpunished and therefore forgetting about justice. He does it by taking our place, doesn't he? And by his death on the cross, taking our punishment, experiencing the wrath of God so that we don't have to. It seems to me that that describes a truly loving God, doesn't it? He loves the world enough to punish evil, but he loves people enough to take the punishment for them upon himself. And he loves us enough to give us a choice. We can ask him to be part of our lives now. We can, uh, and in do, doing that, we avoid hell, we avoid the tribulation, we avoid all of that, and we get to enjoy perfect life in his kingdom forever. Or we can reject that offer of salvation. The choice is ours, therefore sending ourselves into the tribulation if we live that long and into eternity separated from him in hell. This judgment that's going to come upon the world, and it is coming, I believe that those who hate God, who continue to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are the ones who are going to experience the full wrath of his judgment. Those who are sitting on the fence, those who go into the tribulation not so sure about this whole Jesus thing, they're going to come to know Christ during the tribulation, I believe. It's going to be a rough road, but they'll be saved. And the point is that God loves us so much that he gives us time to repent. He gives us, even during the tribulation, he gives you time to repent so that none perish. That's his heart. That's his desire, that not one perish. But sadly, we know the road to salvation is what? Narrow, and few enter it because it is hard. But the road to destruction is wide and broad, and many enter that way. How sad is that? After all that God goes through to give people a choice and a chance, people still, to their dying breath, reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. Look at verses 15 through 16. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. No place on this earth at that period of time will be safe. All the magnificent homes that you've seen, all these places of solace that people have built, places to get away from the world, right, where man can, can just retreat and do whatever he wants. His home is his castle, it's his kingdom, right, hidden from the world around them, separated by perfect manicured lawns and fences. All that's going to be flattened and destroyed. Sorry if you just bought a new house. There's not going to be any place to hide except the rocks and the caves. But notice, this is a time when mankind should be on their knees asking God for forgiveness. And yet they're still running from him. They're still trying to escape his wrath. They're still trying to escape him. Notice they're trying to escape the one who's on the throne. Because even in the midst of all this chaos, all this destruction, they're not willing to give up themselves sitting on the throne, are they? They say that the rocks fall on, on them as if they're in control of the earth. They're not. God is. Man, and I, and I hate to remind us of this, we just are not in control of any of this, are we? That's why it's so important to put our faith and hope and trust in him because he is in control. He knows the beginning from the end. All we need to do, all they need to do at that time is run to him for forgiveness and they'll be forgiven. To submit and surrender to them, to him rather, and they will find his grace and his mercy. The problem is when you think you've done nothing to ask for forgiveness for, you don't see a need to ask for forgiveness, do you? The Bible tells us a much different story, doesn't it? It says there are none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to repent of our sin. We're all sinners. We all need his forgiveness. We all need his mercy. We all need his grace. And right up to the very last second, the very last breath that we have in our lungs, if we ask him for forgiveness, he'll forgive us. If we ask him for his mercy, he'll give us mercy. As Jesus was being nailed to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
If God in the flesh can ask for forgiveness for those who are physically hurting him, how much more will he grant forgiveness to those who have caused his heart to hurt by their sinful lives? This isn't a time. This isn't a time even now to hide from God, to ask the earth to protect you. It's a time to look past the bounds of this earth and consider the freedom of heaven. But there's fear in the hearts of these men, just like there's fear in the hearts of the church today. Fear like they've never known. They're hiding from the only one who can quell those fears. The psalmist writes, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. What a great psalm that is for us to remember. Psalm 55:22. Write that down. That's a great psalm for us even in this day. Because as fear has gripped the church today, the Lord's saying, cast your, fear among, cast your fear on me. Cast whatever's troubling you at my feet. Cast your burdens on me, and I will sustain you. I will lift you up. I will get you through this. I will hold you in the palm of my hand. Look at verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The psalmist also wrote, you yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence? When once you are angry, you cause judgment to be heard from the heaven, and earth feared and was still. Psalm 76, verse 7 and 8. No one will be able to stand before God. No one. Yet man still refuses to repent of their sin and turn to God. I can't imagine standing before a holy and righteous and just God and try to explain to him how I was a good person in this life. I can't even fathom what that would look like. Can you imagine standing before God and trying to sell him how good you've been? And what you're saying is, hey, God, you know, you made a mistake. Your son didn't have to die for my sins. I was just a good person. Open the door. Let me in. Would you open the door? No one's going to be able to stand in front of God that day and tell him how good you've been. In Revelation 16, it says several times that suffering man blasphemes God in effect they're shaking their fist at God they've brought this upon themselves yet they're blaming God for their troubles they're blaming God for their for their pain and their suffering it's ironic that um, that mankind who's forgotten God who's ignored God all this time will blame him for what's going on this is the day of the Lord that we're reading about in Revelation the Jews know it is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a day the Lord has been warning the people of this earth that would take place for centuries. Noah preached to the people in the desert, like I said, for 120 days, and they laughed at him. They mocked him, saying, rain? What's rain? What's a flood, Noah? Do you have a little wine this morning? What are you doing, Noah? They went about their business like nothing would ever happen. Like the same earth that they woke up to the day before, they're going to wake up to the next day. And I don't think it was to the day that that ark was lifted off its moorings and began to float that they began to see that they made a mistake. And at what point it, did they repent, if they ever repented, when the water was at their ankles, their knees, their thighs, their waist, their, right under their chin? At what point did they realize that the only way to salvation was on that ark? The cross is our way to salvation today. At what point will people realize that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ? When the earth quakes, when the stars fall, when the moon goes dark, when the sun begins, when the sun fails to shine, is that when people will realize? I hope it's long before that. We've been given a warning that judgment is coming. And I pray that many heed that warning before it's too late. And one way to avoid that, and we go through this every week after every message, is the ABCs of salvation. And the A is admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no amount of good works that we could ever do that would be enough in the eyes of God. We can never work our way into heaven. There would have been no need for Jesus to die for our sins if we could work our way into heaven, if we could just be good enough. I can't even be good from my house to church.
God who is holy, sinless, and just can't even look upon sin. So how can we enter heaven with the stain of sin upon us? We can't. We can't. But that's why we call the gospel the good news. Because by believing that Jesus died for our sins and turning to him as our Savior, trusting in him and surrendering and submitting to him and asking for his forgiveness, we're forgiven. We're covered by his blood. We, there's nothing righteous within us, but we become righteous through him. He imputes his righteousness to us. We're justified, just as if, and I love this explanation of the word, the definition rather, this word justified, just as if you never sinned. So that brings us to B of the ABCs of salvation. Believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he died for your sins, that he rose from the grave and that he's coming back in glory to judge the living and the dead. Romans 10, verses 10 through 11 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Listen, I can tell you from a personal standpoint that putting your faith and hope in Jesus Christ is the best decision you will ever make in your life. You will never, ever, ever regret putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But I guarantee you that day you're staying on this earth and the earth quakes and that moon turns dark and those stars stop shining, you're going to regret that you didn't listen to your friend. You're going to regret that you didn't heed that pastor's warning. You're going to regret that you didn't give your heart to Jesus Christ before it was too late. And that brings us to C. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And even in the midst of tribulation, even when the stars appear to be falling from the sky and the moon is turned blood red and the earth is quaking, you can still, even in the midst of that, call out on the name of the Lord and be saved. That's God's grace. That's his mercy. He could have just said, listen, I'm drawing a line in the sand. If you don't come to Christ by this time, this day, it's too late. He gives you right up into the very last second that Jesus' foot touches down on this earth to come to Christ. That's grace. That's mercy. So listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to know him, but you have a hard time putting this into words, then I want to pray a prayer with you this morning. And it's not a magic prayer. There's no magic words in this prayer. If you say this prayer, it doesn't just automatically mean that you're saved. The Lord said if you believe it in your heart, if you believe, if you believe it in your heart, if you're changed by these words, then you believe in Jesus Christ, not just with your mind, not just knowing who Jesus is, but actually wanting Jesus to be inside of you, wanting him to be part of your life and you be part of him, then pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord, I am a sinner. You know that I am a sinner. I confess it to you now so that you know that I know that I am a sinner and that I want to turn from that sin, repent of it, and turn to you. I ask for your forgiveness for all my sins, past, present, and future. I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you help me to walk this walk so that I may bring glory and honor to you all the days of my life. Lord, go before me now. Be my Lord and Savior. I ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer with me, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. And as I always say, we'll see you there or see you in the air. Please stand. Let's worship the Lord together.